Welcome in, everybody, to the Longhorn Republic, your source for Texas Longhorn news, sports, and opinions with a bit of snark built in. We are a podcast at Burn Orange Nation, and you can find more great Texas Longhorn content over at burnorangenation.com. If you like what we do, please leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps get the show out there. Share this with your friends wherever you found it, whether it was Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, anywhere where you find fine podcast content. You can find Kyle and myself. Connect with us on social media at Longhorn Pod on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic, or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. My name is Gerald Goodrich, I'm your host this week, like I am every week. And I honestly don't know who I'm joined by because I don't have a depth chart. So why don't you introduce yourself today? <laughs> Deion Sanders once described he's always been number 21, uh, even though in college he was number two. He was number two on the roster, number one in your hearts. Um, I feel like I'm I'm similarly number two on this podcast depth chart, but number one, hopefully, in the people's hearts. Um, Kyle Carpenter, co-host of the Longhorn Republic. Um, Gerald, I, I you know, if we had to list a two deep of, of the hosts and all the guests we've ever had in this podcast, it would be tough. And we, we, we probably wouldn't release that. And I'm sure all the journalists that cover this podcast would take that perfectly fine. I don't want to say anything publicly about the people that are doing it because like John McClain is very, very nice to me and you as well. I think when going through mm-hmm. the sports journalism track at the university of Texas, he was pretty closely involved with that. But like the fact that you are a retired professional football writer freaking out about a university that you did not attend, nor do you cheer for actually you actively cheer against not releasing, a depth chart is the height of stupidity like john is a much smarter person than this and so i don't know what's going on maybe he's just bored like maybe he was missing the controversy of supporting art briles as much as he did like i don't know what but like (laughs) it's just been weird like put the phone down walk away you've earned a retirement man just like give it a break yeah i mean yes he is the most uh most visible and, and vocal and, and again a Baylor grad no matter when you graduated will always take any chance to take a shot at Texas my wife included um, I think it is as part of it's I think it's a first year course you don't even have to graduate if you go to Baylor it's it's a uh, first year first semester course on hating UT and, and taking shots at every turn so again I, I don't uh, fault him it, it is now that he's retired his his main prerogative as a Baylor grad right he's not a writer anymore he's a Baylor grad and every Baylor grad will take their shots at UT uh, all day every day but it, it is you know it's a very very stupid and dumb thing to be upset about uh, it's funny I think I've seen some of our own fans being upset about it I don't understand um, it's a depth chart guys you know, there's a real life thing that happens uh, on Saturdays typically uh, that that you know, we'll tell you who the ones are, usually who the twos are. Um, so if you don't know which freshman is like slotted in at the number four at a certain position, I, I'm really sorry. And uh, uh, I hate that for you. The craziest thing in my mind are the two, the two conversations that I'm seeing of one that Sark wanted to list it as yours or card. <laughs> and that's coming from uh, basically the equivalent of sliced bread from the OU side uh, that yeah. has sources highly placed. And then yep. the other one is that uh, because a guy like Ethan Burke, who we talked about in our D-line preview, has a really high upside. We thought had a really uh, long development curve, but he's worked his way into the too deep. And so the other conversation is that um, Sark didn't want to hurt guys' feelings ahead right. of the game. And, and um I don't know if you ever heard Steve Sarkeesian talk, but he doesn't seem like he's super concerned with hurting folks' feelings. Like, he is um, pretty candid, pretty raw, pretty honest. And so, uh, like, it seems like it's really just, again, the depth chart matters to nobody outside of the the, the uh, locker room, right? Like, it doesn't matter and, at all. And and those guys know it, right? They, there is they, no... There is no denying when you line up with ones and twos who's taking the reps. Like it's not like you four guys stand there with the ones, okay? And you're all going to be defensive end today. It's it's not youth, you know, soccer, right? There there is a uh, the, the, there is a hierarchy that that naturally uh, distills here. Um, and and to the other point, just the like the fake sources and things. Like I mean, the guy named a freaking starter. Like it's I don't understand what the, the the controversy that is trying to be drummed up. But again, if if I took a shot at Baylor, I will I will equally do one for OU to their credit like I didn't realize the internet strength and Gerald you you are out there but is this strong in all parts of rural Oklahoma but those guys are constantly (laughs) online and monitoring every Texas news story and commenting on it and apparently voting in fan polls very religiously like they are a very online fan base and um, Texas you know 
having Texas as your main rival certainly gives you a lot to talk about all the time. So um, stay mad, I guess. It's wild to me that on the Monday after we had actual football on the screen and the Monday of the actual first game week, we got the most off-season of off-season stories, controversies ever. But we're not here to talk about depth charts. I mean, we might talk about depth charts a little bit. (laughs) We're here to close out our previews. We're going to talk about the defensive backs and the special teams, a big question mark. We'll also do a bit of a season preview. We've been doing it on and off again for the last 12-ish weeks. So go back on Thursdays and check us out. Uh, so we've got a little bit to talk about. We'll talk about expectations for the year. Like, what does that look like? We'll close the show out. We've got a, a, a pack down the 40, Kyle. It feels good. The ladies were in action over the weekend representing the University of Texas. We'll obviously close the show out with some bang the drum. So there's a lot of controversy, conversation, consternation about the moniker of defensive back university. And uh, I'm not here to adjudicate that. They're much larger, much you know more notable people that actually have stats that are going to talk about it. But um, the, the University of Texas has called itself uh, at times DBU and probably for good uh, for good reason in the early 2000s, but uh, have kind of fallen a little bit from that as of late. Uh, a year ago, Texas only gave up 224 yards per game through the air. Teams completed like 70% of their completions. You know, it's it's just not a... Uh, it's a group that we don't necessarily know what it's going to be this year. There are a lot of... Um, experienced guys at the top. There's a lot of inexperienced guys uh, all over the place. Probably some transfers is going to have a lot to say about it. Um, but as we talk about the DBs, and Sark talked about it in his Monday presser, there's like this relationship between the pass rush and the the defensive backs where if they're both decent, then they're both better, right? Because if the quarterback has to go past his kind of three-step drop and throw the ball, is it an advantage to the defensive line and the pass rush. If the pass rush is better, the quarterback can't set his feet, doesn't have as much time to find somebody. Because as we saw uh, in the Nebraska-Northwestern game, if you give a quarterback 12 seconds to complete a pass, he's going to find somebody open. So there's this recursive relationship. And if they both can take a step up, if either one can take a step up, it seems like a situation where both of them can. Yeah, so so the, the, the switching to press man coverage um, is, is directly related to that, you know, giving, like you said, a, a bit more time for the blitz to get home which again exactly like you said i like the word recursive that was nice gives gives the uh gives the defense a a a better chance to be playmakers right to um here's the thing right that when you say they only gave up 224 yards per game there's a couple misleading parts about that stat right the fact that they gave up 202.4 yards per game on the ground um is why they Defenses didn't feel like they had to take as many shots in the air. Texas was was gashed uh, for big plays, right? Like when you think of, of the, the big explosive plays against Texas, sure, a few of them came through the air, but a lot of them came on the ground. And, and that is also the part of, of defensive backs is stepping up and stopping. You know, an, a nine-yard run sucks. You miss the tackle and it's a 43-yard run and that's way worse, right? So um, stopping a, a bad play becoming, you know, a game-changing play, right? So um, there is... There is a component to the, the ground game, but you know, just looking at the kind of traditional metric that you measure defensive backs by, the 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 way that they played eyes on the quarterback, um, kind of off the ball uh, in the secondary um, should have should um, give your defensive backs greater chance to jump in and be playmakers because they see the quarterback what ended up happening was that quarterbacks just took little underneath stuff against texas a lot very efficiently and waited for one to break or again broke plays on the ground uh see baylor ou etc um but you know completing against against the cornerbacks 70 percent is 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 not you know ideal and again i think a lot of it is scheme where they're giving up a lot of uh, short stuff um so you will see a pretty drastic change this year when you're playing press man you will see more big plays inevitably that come against the Texas cornerbacks, right? If you have um, whoever is out there, but if we think it's Jamison Watts, if you have your cornerbacks a bit more on an island and engaging at the line of scrimmage and then having to play catch up if the receiver gets the release, um, you know, that is a chance for a good quarterback to put that ball over, over that shoulder, right? And and you have to have the speed, you have to have the recovery, the playmaking to either go up, get an interception, go up, get a, get a you know, a PBU. Um, it, it will require, require some skill, but again, it will, as, as Sark said, if you can just add a little hitch in the quarterback's drop, a little bit where he can't just in rhythm step up and, and throw on the quick three-step drop, which 
will never allow a rush to get home, right? A five-step drop. Uh, if he's got time to sit there, he's going to really rear back and, and, and throw the deep ball well. Um, so, you know, this will be different. We will see a little bit of a, a curve. Obviously, they've, they've had time to, to do that in the offseason, but against real live offenses. And, and I think a lot of this um, is predicated on, on the fact that it sounds like Ryan Watts will be starting at, at one of those cornerback spots, and he has the body type for that, right? He is a kind of quintessential NFL press guy, 6'2". He's, he's good at the press. Um, there was some talk when he first came that he could he could have a safety body because he tackles really, really well um, and just is, is big, big frame, can do a lot of things, but I think it's it's more perfectly suited for that press. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see who the other cornerback is um, and our kind of nickel, um, if, if that's going to be uh, Jamison and Jade Barron. But but if, if it's those two guys, it'll be very curious to see Jamison. Um, if he's pressing, he, he, he's his agility is otherworldly. His speed is very, very good. Um, his strength and size are not necessarily his strength, so he will be doing a lot of recovery. But again, you know, if you watch the elite players who play cornerback, right, like the, the guy who's also the running back on the other side in high school, um, and they get 12 picks a year, most of them are like, oh, someone's here, and they just jump up and take the ball, right? Can Jamison do that? He was recruited as a receiver. He has that athleticism. He only has four career interceptions. He got his first one against Oklahoma State last year since 2019, right? He had a little drought. Can this actually open something up for him where he's got his hips turned and he's playing recovery? and just going see ball make play and does that unlock something for him so um it will be very curious right to see um but i i do think gerald you're absolutely correct there will be some new faces we're, we're losing a lot of, of known entities um for good or for bad in that <laughs> secondary right like guys who we knew what their ceiling was we, we were, were losing some of those and um it will look different when you've got Fosters at Sam Houston State, Brendan Schooler's probably going to make the Patriots this year. Uh, Chris Adamora is at the University of Texas fin- Finishing School in Dallas. Uh, Tyler <laughs> Owens is at Tech. Darian Dunn, haven't seen his name pop up anywhere. But you could say it's for good or you could say it's for ill. And I think some of these may be um, addition by subtraction. And, you know, we can talk about that on, on another podcast. But, you know, when you've got... Like you said, Jamison and Cook kind of holding it down from the fifth. You know, Steve Sarkeesian mentioned him in his Monday press conference. Like, Cook has played a lot of football. He's a guy who you can look at to kind of be like a field general back there. He's a guy you can look at to show some leadership back there. But I'm really excited to see, like you mentioned, Ryan Watts. That was a huge addition for Texas and kind of one of those that it almost felt like an out of the blue transfer where it's like, oh, he's, he, but coming back home makes a ton of sense. Terrence Brooks is a kid who, again, I think could come in and potentially play early. He's was one of the best corners in the country he's got you got that body he's got the ability he's got long arms Um, you're gonna see some freshman mistakes but I think one of the things that this will hopefully alleviate one of the biggest issues we saw on the defensive backfield last year was like the miscommunication and the missed handoffs between zones and that was where a lot of teams found success against Texas was the handoff between the corner and the safety or the corner and the nickelback in these in these um, deep cover two cover three zone type schemes those weren't happening they weren't communicating. They weren't turning their hips well. They weren't handing them off well. And that's where a lot of teams found success in those little moments between uh, the zones. And so playing this press, man, again, it's just like be better than the guy across from you. And more often than not, the guy at Texas should be more talented than the guy across from them. They should have better coaching at this point than the guy across from them. And so that's what I'm hoping and curious to see is does that translate? Because, again, Ryan Watts, Terrence Brooks, those are high four-star, like fringe five-star guys. Like those were top-tier guys. Jalen Gilbo is a guy who people want to, you know, frown on him because of, you know, he had some off-the-field stuff, and it's fine. But like he's come in and made a name for himself. He's come in and really been a stud, and he may end up playing that like that nickel spot, that that uh, that kind of hybrid role uh, that we see in this defense, but. You know, that one feels like when we talk about playing young guys, that feels like a get to rather than a have to. And that is what's exciting about a guy like Jalen Gilbo coming in, because I expected him to sit. I expected him to be a redshirt developmental guy, get into your college body, you know, kind of shake off some of the dumb high school mentality you had. But apparently outside of like that one incident early in camp, he's been a guy that Texas has been able to, to lean on and look to uh, to be a guy in 
the locker room for them. So I'm excited to see him uh, get some shine. And, and again, Gary Patterson coming in to hopefully help put some scaffolding under this coaching staff. And, you know, Gary Patterson, defensive back whisperer, defensive back guru, put Gary Patterson has put two and three star guys in the league at defensive back. And so giving Gary Patterson this level of clay to work with, and again, he's not going to be on the sidelines during the game. You can't do that, but he's been in practice and he's been coaching these guys up and he's been in a game planning mode. That's what I'm curious to see. Does that pay off dividends? this year for Texas because you and I have said it Texas doesn't need to be a pluses and everything Texas is not going to be Alabama this year but if Texas can go from a D minus to a C that might be a winning solution for Texas there's a there's a big group of players right you talked about Jamison and Watts at the corner you talked about the young guys who've come in and again I love that young guys are pushing older guys like just get in and win your spot right that depth chart is who's playing the best who earned it right so so get in and, and win it um anthony cook all of his experience i i think i like what he does back at safety a lot um uh, like you mentioned um but then there's there's a group of three players that if you just look at how experienced they are in a next man up mentality this should be their year jade baron keaton crawford jaron thompson none of them are young they're all juniors right these are there's a third year in the program type of guys uh, i actually thought they were all sophomores i was forgetting they they hate you know covid makes everything weird but i was forgetting this is their third um year with the team so there is an expectation that you it's it's a put up or shut up kind of time right like you you could have you know two of those guys starting and one playing a lot, right? You could have Crawford at the other safety or Jaron Thompson at the other safety. You could have Jody Barron starting and you need that, right? Or else you're playing those really talented freshmen. I mean, I think Gilbo and Terrence Brooks are both guys who, who are chomping at the bit to get in there and that's great. Um, but can the juniors hold them off, right? Not so much Watts, Jamison, and Cook. We know what three of the defensive backs will be, but can Barron, who last year, you know, was, was quite good, right? Like he, he um, had the best catch rate uh, against him on the team while both our corners were up around 70 percent and Josh Thompson is going to make an NFL roster as well right and he was one of those two and Jameson being the other those aren't good numbers right you want that to be 50 percent you want it to be 40 percent if you're a first round draft pick right but you want it to be 50 percent that's just kind of the 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 the, the standard I think that puts you in the like 58 percent puts you in pro football focus it's green right like you want to be in the green um and, and uh, I think Cook and Barron were the only two on our team last year in the green in coverage, right? So Baron at 50%, if he can really lock up that nickel spot as a cover from a cover stance, and and uh, while Cook is just such a, a good, solid football player, Baron does have a little bit more twitchiness, a little bit more speed. They may not have to shade a safety as much to him. Um, if Baron can truly lock that up a little bit, take away the slot, take away, you know, for, for the quarterbacks in the Big 12, there's a lot of upside but unprovenness right in this conference if you could take away that safety blanket of the the slot receiver it's the first guy to cross you know flash across your eyes right it's the the first look for most college receivers um it, it's uh it does some things like we talked about the pass rush helping uh our, our corners it, it it's it's all symbiotic so if you can take away that a little bit have your safeties helping other places uh then then you know it, it, it makes everyone a little bit better but that's a big if right it's a big if that we're talking about um all three of these juniors making making a step up as they come in um I, I really don't know, Gerald. I, I don't know that the defensive backfield is – I'm not ready to call it a strength. I think it has the potential to be, and there's some interesting pieces, right? Mm -hmm. If Maurice Blackwell is in there, if he's a guy who's playing, it's because he can be what freshman B.J. Foster was where he's just a scare tactic because you know he can – Yeah, because he can just – he could destroy someone coming across the middle, and that receiver's not going to want to run across the middle. I think he has a lot still to learn about playing the safety position, but he he's ready to hit, and you saw that in the spring game, and I love that. Get the guy in the field. I think he'll probably play a lot of special teams, and again, if he's playing, that probably means that he's taken that little step up. Um, you know, if any of the other other guys are, are JD coffee, you know, any of these players are, are Jimmy or Johnson are getting in. Um, I hope that means it's because they are, they are making those steps up, working their way up the depth chart versus, you know, either injury, of course, we, Lord willing, we don't want any more of those. Um, or, you know, the, these guys who are seniors and juniors not looking like they have that, you know, experience that, that should be their, their greatest benefit isn't paying off to make them look like they know what they're doing. We're, we're, you know, a defensive coordinator is, is ready to cut bait and give the young guy a shot. Right. So I hope we're not, in any more of those play the young guys because well at least they at least they try at least they're at least they're running around hard out there um so so that is kind of what i'll be watching when it comes to the secondary unit 
you said it like I'm not ready to call anything on the defense a strength at this point just because of what we've seen and where we're at and again especially on the as the defense goes I'm from Missouri on this like you got to show me something but I think of the groups when you evaluate their ceilings I think the defensive backfield especially the cornerback position has the highest ceiling to be a strength right I think about the guys on along the edges that Texas has brought in and if they hit their ceiling I think if some of these cornerbacks hit their ceiling especially in the cover and what you know Texas is going to do this year I think they could also be a strength again there's a really high ceiling for them and speaking of something that was a strength that maybe needs to uh, reassess special teams Kyle Jeff Banks the assistant head coach, the monkey's stepdad, whatever you want to call him. But he's got a job before him. Texas has to replace Cameron Dicker, who was waived by both L.A. and Baltimore this week, this year. But uh, he was the man in the kicking game for Texas. Texas was number five in both punting efficiency and field goal efficiency, basically measuring uh, scoring advantage gained or lost in uh, those two facets of the game. Texas was number five. Guess whose foot did both of those? Cameron Dicker. So they've got a they've got a competition to replace him. It seems like based on what Steve Sarkeesian shared on Monday that Isaac Pearson, our friend, literal friend of the show, a guy who's been on the podcast with us, um, is going to be the guy at punter. Sark gave him some specific praise on Monday. And it's again, it's weird to hear a coach mentioning the specialist by name. And I'm fine with it. That was a dumb shtick, whatever. Uh, so Pearson's going to step in at punter. It seems like Will Stone is going to be the guy for kickoffs. But as far as the point afters and field goals, still some competition. Uh, Stone and Burt Auburn, uh, guy, perfect name, perfect main for Texas, are going to battle it out this week. So I'm curious to see how that shakes out because – uh, college kickers is a meme for a reason, and especially in a year where the margins are so slim for Texas, having a solid kicker, having a guy that you know you could trot out there and could hit it from 45, 50 yards to get you some points on the board when things get weird would be an advantage, and Texas just does not have that this year. Yeah, I mean, maybe it means uh, there's a couple more fourth downs we go for it versus not, which again, I, I'm a huge fan of, you know, like seven out of 10, should you go for it? Yes, just do it. Um, but that's, you know, another conversation. Uh, but I, I, I do think that Isaac Pearson is ready to step in and be the next great Australian punter at the University of Texas. Don't forget it. that this gentleman was the number one punter out of Pro Kick Australia, the greatest, the Australian punter factory, right? Like um, he, he has the pedigree. He put in the work. Um, he's been at Texas. He's bided his time, right? Last year, Dicker took it over and at first we said oh what does that mean for the other punters on the on the roster but then you saw dicker was legitimately maybe a better punter than he ever was a kicker right like legitimately good my dream of justin tucker ravens kicker <laughs> cameron dicker ravens punter is is sadly not realized after they waved him but yeah i mean i really i really like the praise that that pearson's been been getting I, i've heard people describe being at practice and hearing the sound of his punts and it just sounds like you know he's just thwumping that's uh onomatopoeia there uh thwumping them uh you know it's 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 good i'm excited but it is it is a learning curve right you you are playing real live big boy uh college football and, and we saw even michael dixon one of the greatest college punters of all time struggle a little bit as he first took over the, the duty. So we'll see. Give him a little bit of grace, but I think the upside is there for Pearson to lock that down uh, and be a great punter for us. Kickoffs, great. Extra points, field goals, you know, whoever wins it. There's a lot of scrutiny on kickers, man. Like, you, you have to have a special mind. It's like goalkeepers in, in, in soccer. Like, if you make one mistake, everyone talks about it you know if you, you you do 12 things in a row right like cool everyone expects it um it's 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 a very tough psychological place to be where people focus <laughs> very loudly on your mistakes so hopefully one of these guys not only has the leg but the mentality right i think so much of it is between the ears um sark also mentioned dicker missed his first two before he never missed right so um I, I don't have a dog in this fight. I do like Bert Auburn a lot, just the way he looks. Uh, <laughs> I love that hair. Uh, but Will Stone, you know, has an NIL built in to be the next Keith Stone, uh, Keystone spokesperson. So uh, once he's 21, of course. But uh, yeah, I, I, you know, a lot of, lot of names here, a lot of interesting things. Um, 
to think about on the, the kicking side. I'm actually more interested on the returning side because I, I believe I heard a report that Deshaun Jameson will be doing kick returns but will not be doing punt returns this year. So the punt returner without a depth chart released will be a little bit of a TBD. Xavier Worthy um, at one point said he's the best punt returner on the team, <laughs> which I just love the man's confidence. Um, we have some young guys who've come in with a ton of speed. Brendan Thompson, uh, got to go fast, baby. That's right. Um, you know, maybe Jameson by week six, it's like, nope, we need him. Put him out there. He's done it. We know that he can do it. Um, so so I'll be very curious who's our punt returner. I do think Jameson will be one of the um, kick returners, and he's, you know, fourth all-time at Texas with, like, 26 great returns called back, it feels like. So <laughs> how high te- can he, he rise? Texas in almost punt return touchdowns. Easily. That's it on our special teams preview. So uh, we don't know who the kicker and or who the punt return and kickoff return specialist will be uh, this year, but we'll find out whenever they trot out there on Saturday. So we're excited. There's actually football to watch in Burnt Orange this weekend. So speaking of Burnt Orange football to watch, we've been going through for the last 12 weeks on Thursdays and giving you previews of every team on the schedule. And so we wanted to take a moment and do a little bit of that for the University of Texas. Now we've gone position by position, week by week, so we're not going to go in there, but we've got a couple of questions that we want to discuss. And and I think that'll help us kind of guide the conversation for the next few minutes. So, you know, Texas Coming off a five and seven season, lost six in a row, lost to Kansas on a two point conversion. Yes, we're all aware of all those things that can happen. Relatively clean offseason until the last, I don't know, three weeks ish or so. Had two key injuries to Isaiah Nayor and Junior Angulao. Both will miss the season. Ajayi Hall, transfer in from Alabama on his kind of last rope, uh, decided to do something that we've all thought about and hit a parking boot with his tire iron until it came off. Don't blame him, honestly. I feel like I would have done that uh, if I was. You know, a little less, a little more fearless in college. Um, But there's a lot to unpack. And so, Kyle, what I want to talk about here, just to start, is like when you think about this season and you think about where you're focusing on, what's the biggest storyline you are watching heading into the season? I think for me, the, the, the single biggest is, you know, can Texas, can Texas do enough on the offensive side of the ball? With a freshman quarterback and with freshmen, probably two of them starting, maybe three, uh, on the offensive line, can they do enough to win football games to get to the goals they want to get to, even if their defense only takes that half step forward? Can the offense truly carry this team? Can you or step up? And, and, you know, we break it down by position. And when you do that, you put things into a silo and you f- hyper-focus on the receivers. And you say, ah, you know, I'd love a little more depth here since Nayor went down. Or, you know, you look at the quarterbacks and you're talking about high school tape, right, with with, with yours. And you look at the offensive line and it's real easy to get down. But, but the thing that I think about, the great equalizer on all of this, is Bijan Robinson really is that dude. <laughs> and he honestly makes everything on that offense better, right? Like, it's easy to look at his rushing stats and be like, yeah, that guy's good. Like, don't forget how deadly he is in the passing game. Like, I was reading a uh, a, a draft. They were trying to – I even remember the website, and I apologize. I'm not giving them credit. But they were breaking down the breakout player of, of this season, and they basically said, like, all of the advanced stats say that Bijan should be just so crazy good this year, um, you know, based on his, his yards uh, after contact – um, I think he averaged like 6.1 yak uh, as the the rushing yak yards after contact last year. His uh, yards after catch in the in the the passing game plus depth of reception for running back are both like 88th to 95th percentile. Like he just does everything well. He talked in the offseason about being a better pass blocker. Like the guy is looking for ways to be better. And so when I talk about unlocking the offense, like for me the biggest storyline is is you know can Bijan really rise all can he be the 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 tide that rises all boats right like is can he really do that can he stay healthy enough can he take a bigger workload can he help in the pass game can he can he help block in the in the pass game uh can he really get those yards on third downs if we end up running it because we know you want the ball in his hands like can he really put in a herculean effort that 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 makes our offense what it is the crazy thing about Bijan is that he talked today in the, in the media availability, uh, and I say today because we're recording this on Monday to put out Tuesday morning, that like 
he's willing to do more, which it's it's one of those things like, is there any more he can do? But he was like, he they asked him about working with the redshirt quarterback, a redshirt freshman quarterback, and he said, I told the kid when all else fails, just throw the check down. And like that is the attitude that you want from your bell cow. It's just like, I, I rem- I'll never forget hearing a, a kid say this to me. He said, God gave me big shoulders for a reason. I could carry a lot. And that is like the mindset that Bijan has going into the season. Like the good Lord gave me big shoulders for a reason. And like, I just absolutely love that. Now, hopefully it doesn't get to that point where he has to rush 40 times in a game. Like Charlie strong did Deontay Foreman, try to save his job. I don't think it'll get to that point. Um, especially because there are multiple running backs that can carry the load, but if you know me for for any amount of time, you know that the storyline that I'm absolutely watching is the trenches. 100% of the time, that's going to be my answer, day in, day out, and twice on Sundays. Is What does the offensive line look like, especially now that Angulau is hurt? What does the offensive line look like where they're going to have to depend on a bunch of underclassmen? What is the defensive line going to look like? Who are going to be the guys? Are they going to be able to generate a pass rush predictably? Those are the things that I'm going to watch because I think that those are probably the biggest linchpins to what this offense and defense can be. If the offensive line goes from a D minus, like I said before, to a C or even a B, I don't want to get greedy. This, def- this offense can be good. If the defensive line can go from not being able to set an edge to setting an edge or being able to stop run. They were terrible against uh, the run, being able to set and uh, maintain against the run last year. Arkansas ran all over Texas. Uh, Iowa State ran all over Texas. And so, like again, can the defensive line meet the challenge? Because that's where it all starts for the defense. That's where it all starts for any sort of semblance of successful defense is can you get the running back? Can you stop the run to get an offense off schedule? And can you put a quarterback out of his rhythm and out of his three steps and pop to be able to uh, create some disruptive plays? Those are the two things that I'm really paying attention to. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you're probably correct. You have the SEC mentality, Gerald. The, the, <laughs> the trenches, like, look, I'm, I'm a fan of, of the Baltimore Ravens at the NFL level, and they basically do things the SEC way in, in pros, right? Like, every year they draft maybe some linebackers and, and a defensive line and an offensive line and, like, just work on the big fellas. Like, they never take, you know, running backs, receivers. They do get some defensive backs. But um, focus on defense, focus on the trenches. And, and you know, that's what we're going to see in SEC football. That's where it's heading. And that's where this coaching staff clearly is prioritizing the future. But what about the now? What about this year? What about, you know, players who are on the roster who have um, – paycheck seasons right looking at you Tavondre Sweat Keandre Coburn uh, you know what about you know any of the offensive linemen who want to elevate themselves and 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 lock a spot in for the next couple of years like Carpe that DM who's gonna who's gonna do it with with no uh real seniors on the offensive line now that Angulo has uh suffered but you know nonetheless like you, you've brought in a lot of young players you're doing a um, NCAA football simulation, like maybe just let all the young players play and deal with the warts and they get really good by their fourth year and you win national championship. But that's not necessarily real life. That's not how we're doing it. So it's a combination of those guys will get their chance. You'll bleed them in. But who's going to step up? Like who out of the the offensive line who's in that room who's returning is going to step up and, and say, all right, with, with Angelo down, I, I, I'm i going to be the guy. Is that Jake Majors? I mean, who, who, who's stepping up to be the leader there on, on the defense? Which one of those really talented players and recruits is going to step up and say, all right, we aren't getting beat for 200 yards a game in the running game, you know, giving up what felt like nine yards a carry in some games. Like we're not allowing that because of the name across their chest. We, we, we won't do it. So who steps up in, in those as, as you know, the older players and, and which young players, you know, make themselves unbenchable. So in the trenches, that's where it all happens, right? You can you could throw deep passes, catch long long you know uh, balls, intercept some passes, whatever. But you know, seventy times a game, you have ten large humans going up against each other, and whichever side wins that usually allows your your uh, your your percentage uh, efficacy to 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 greatly uh, go one way or the other, right? You stop a run or you get a run. Now, Bijan, I talked about yards after contact, but you know. What 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 if what if he didn't have to? What if uh, you know he had the Emmett Smith uh, luxury where you know at, at at five yards past the line of scrimmage he gets to decide who he makes miss right? So um, I agree. I think Gerald, you're absolutely right, and that's you can't 
talk about Texas football any season, but certainly this one without looking at the big the big folks on both sides of the ball. You know, I'm always looking at the big folks, Kyle. So when we look back at this season, like we asked so many of our guests, when we look back at this season in December, hopefully January, fingers crossed, um, <laughs> how will you measure its success? Like when we look back and say this was a successful season, what would you say? Sark himself went out and, and said, you know, look at year two Saban, look at year two Pete Carroll, look at, you know, people have also thrown out, look at year two Bob Stoops. Um, you're playing with fire if you put yourself in those types of comparisons because those are programs that immediately left the you know five six win first year stratosphere and went into the playing for college football you know playoffs or premier bowls or national championships like from year two on with those guys that was the standard and I like that Sark isn't backing down from that you don't say that and then be an eight win coach um, there's a guy down the road who does that, right? He he and his fans talk a big game and gets plaques with years on it when they're winning national championship, but they win eight games, like 75 years without winning anything of, of any merit. But um, that's not Texas, and that's not Sark. And so I think when you judge this season, it's how clear are our, our, our steps forward, right? Um, I, was, I was looking at the roster composition, and Sark talked about as soon as he got here that he wanted to change it up. 57 out of the 85 players on this roster are freshmen or sophomores. A lot of key guys we've talked about in our previews of each position and in this one are going to be contributing as freshmen and certainly as as sophomores. 35 out of the 80 uh, rostered guys are, 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 are new, brand new, net new, walked in. Um, Sark said it in his presser this week, like more than half the team wasn't a 5-7 and seven team. This is different than last year but is it different in a significant way and and do you see a difference in mentality do you see a difference in attitude do you see a difference in in hustle and effort do you see a difference in execution right like do you see a difference does that i don't measure that with its x amount of wins i measure it with a little bit of the eye test here to say does it look different i mean i've said it on a couple podcasts that have had me on as a guest bless their souls um (laughs) texas was not a five and seven talent team last year so you don't have to build from a five win team talent wise it wasn't right they they besides arkansas they had a chance and probably should have probably should have won every game they played like they, they led in the fourth quarter of, of oklahoma state baylor ou like the, the 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 you know the best teams of the conference last year like there was no talent deficit it wasn't that this is a five win team that you're now having to revolutionize right it was a buy-in it was a ninth consecutive defensive coordinator right like I'm, I'm exaggerating only slightly so i when i when i say that to, to button this answer up it's getting a bit rambly here um i measure the success with does this look different are they winning the, the close games this this time instead of losing them are they stepping away from teams instead of allowing them back in if they build up first half leads do they have that killer's instinct do they uh you know do they respond when all these freshmen we're talking about inevitably have bad plays. Do they get back up and go make a good play to make up for it? Or do they get down in the woe is me's right? So it's a lot of how does this team, you know, the underneath Texas, just underneath it and over to the left is the heart, right? And, and how much of that are they going to have? How much of that are they going to represent uh, through, through 12 games in the regular season? Um, and that's how I'll measure it, right? Is, is does this team, take that step forward they don't have to win 11 this year but do they show the things that an 11 win team ultimately has that you can build on i i'm I'm kind of in alignment with you there kyle like i think my biggest want from this season is to not have so many podcasts and post-game reflections that were like what just happened Right. And, and, and I say that like anecdotally, but I think everybody knows like what that feeling is where you're sitting at the game. Like, the OU game is the perfect example, right? Where Texas is cruising. And then it's like, what on God's green earth just happened? Right. Like more of those, less of those moments this year where it's just trying to figure out where did the game lose or, or being able to pinpoint exactly where the game was lost. It was that play. It was that interception. It was that whatever fill in the blank that that turned the tides for Texas. Again, Texas was in this position to beat and should have beat both of the teams that played for a conference championship last year. 
Like that is that is an in, like incontrovertible fact. They both had comebacks against Texas, and and we'll talk about we can talk about reasonings all day if we want to. But I think for me, it's being able to turn the corner that they've been standing on for three years. Can they finally? Can this team put it together? And again, there was a, another coach three years ago, but like, can they turn the corner? Can they put it all together? Can they turn the five star talent into five star results? And that to me, and and again, I'm not I'm not expecting undefeated the year this year. The the breaks had to go all right for Texas this year to get to that point, and the breaks have already not gone right. Again, we talked about Mayor and Angelau being hurt, but I think from my perspective. Texas being able to step on the field and not walk away with a what on what on earth happened loss and and, and you'll ha- you'll have one of those because you're playing so many young players that'll happen occasionally but for it to happen six freaking times in a row like all six of those losses were what just how I say Iowa State wasn't Iowa State just beat Texas into the ground early and often, but five of those six losses, which like, how did this happen? What happened? Like did not see that coming type of situations. And that to me in year two is inexcusable. Yeah. I, I, I think that's exactly right. And I, I do like looking at this through our, our own lens um, um, because Gerald, while he is the, the nicest guy I know, I hate seeing my sweet podcast host just be frustrated beyond means on Saturdays. I like talking to you when uh, when, when when we win. Um, so give us give us more of those. But but Gerald, I, I, let me throw. We're doing a season preview this year, but let me throw just a wild hypothetical because we haven't talked about this, and I'm curious if Texas doesn't lose the most wild of those games, right? Kansas, just say even if it's terrible and it goes to overtime the right thing happens as, as the world is supposed to happen and they don't lose that game and they also even though OU mounts a, a, a nice comeback they come up just short and Texas is able to hold them off and so they're they're seven in 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 five instead of five and seven presumably they're some bowl game whatever happens in the bowl game I'm not worried about they could lose it for all I care um they still lose the same way to Baylor to Oklahoma State to, to you know Arkansas was tough but like that's the season are people looking at this team entirely differently if they're able to pull out those two games that basically came down to two plays, three plays, but you could pick any of 50 different plays that didn't go Texas's way out of those two games? Like, are we looking at the season as we project this next one completely differently if they're seven and five instead of five and seven? In my mind, I think so. And really, the games that jump into my projection more more than that are like Arkansas and Iowa State, right? Like, those two are the more inexcusable ones in my mind. Like, you should come out and just absolutely crap the bed. But, like, if, again, if Texas is five and seven instead of seven and five, you you might be right that we're predicting it. We're, we're talking about a nine-win season, right? But there is... That's not what happened. But I, I do think there is like there's this world that we live in in which all the tales that came up tails last year come up heads. And we're talking about Sark in his first year figuring it out and getting it right. Because, again, a lot of those games felt like coin flip games. A lot of those games felt like if one break happens differently, if Casey Thompson his thumb is okay and he can have a little more zip on some of those deep balls. Right. There are a lot of opportunities where things can go right for Texas where it it. Sark has an eight win season in his first year. People are like, Oh, this, this thing might get figured out. And I, it's hard for me to live in that world, but I think there is a, there is a bit of a, how do we properly modulate expectations factor that goes into this? And maybe that's a good thing for Sark and his staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I agree. Like I, I'm not trying to let him off the hook. That is what happened. Right. And you have to, you have to own that. You have to live in that, and that makes it all the sweeter if you can get it figured out. But I just, I just curious because I, 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 like I said, I've been on other podcasts and I've talked to fans of other teams, and and, I, and we do this right. There's so much that we consume and take in and store in our brain that we eventually like just kind of wash away any of the nuance and erode down to its like its absolute foundational. You were five and seven. You were a five win team last year, and I understand that. But again, like I said, this is not a five win talent team there are some deficiencies in this team and there were huge deficiencies last year but if that's a seven win team last year or even six whatever and we're talking about the steps up it just feels like that's a more realistic summation but they did lose those games and they so that is a mentality thing and so all the stuff i said previous to this still stands i just i just wonder 
how unlucky they were and where the, you know, exactly where the chicken little falls. Um, we'll find out, right? In, in less than a week, we'll find out how this team plays. We'll get to start talking about 2022 and not for, for a nice change about 2021. Okay, so let's let's close the book on the previews, Kyle. Your prediction. I hate doing predictions, but I'm going to force myself to it. What is your record prediction? Vegas, before the injuries, had Texas at eight and a half wins. What's your prediction? And if you pick a bowl-eligible record, what bowl do you think Texas ends up in? I think eight and four feels right. Um, I think, you know, barring something wildly crazy, like I think they're going to lose against Bama. You'll find out some things, but I don't think you have to measure your season against Bama. Again, we're not talking about an 11-win team. We're not talking about how do we get there this year. We're talking about do we show up and play. So that's a loss. Um, you know, the, the, some combination then of, of, of three in conference that's, you know, uh, Baylor, uh, OU, Oklahoma State. I'm hoping the TCU curse is over now that Patterson is gone, West <laughs> Virginia, right? Like out of those five, you find three. I think they're going to handle Iowa State, who lost, you know, 99% of their production, Um I think they're going to get that monkey off their back a bit. I think um, the Oklahoma State game has been one score like the past six. Like it's even when Texas isn't good and Oklahoma State is really good, it's a close game. That's going to be a close game. And so does that go Texas's way or does it not at the end of, you know, the way the schedule lays out? Um, they have some 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 tough games on the road this year. And so I, I just think it feels to me like three conference losses. Um, but, you know, if if – if it comes down to that last game against Baylor and things are, you know, that everyone's beaten up on everyone and that still means you have a, a backdoor into the big 12 championship, then, then maybe this team gets up for that. Right. But uh, to me, eight and four feels right. And you get to a bowl and you, you're putting me on the spot that I have to pick a bowl, pick a bowl. Like Texas, Texas always gets the Alamo bowl, but <laughs> you know, it just always does. But maybe this will be the year, depending who's in, if anyone makes it up to the playoff, wherever teams fall, maybe this is the year Texas gets the Cheez-It Bowl, which always seems to be a wild and crazy bowl. Maybe I'm just projecting that one crazy, crazy <laughs> one. But um, like a good ACC team uh, in the Cheez-It Bowl feels like it would be fun. Like that, that feels like, um, you know, wh- whoever we get out of the ACC, there is a, a Mac Brown sized uh thing there though i don't think they're going to be great this year but um you know if it's the other team if it's nc state with their really great quarterback if they're a little below where they want to be does that you know that'd be a fun matchup in the cheese bowl something like that but acc big 12 cheese bowl to me feels like all right we're, we're back in bowl contention win that bowl baby um get get back that would give you nine wins via this projection i'm saying nine wins with a bowl win i mean that's a heck of a year I, I would count it, and I fall in the same camp. I, I've said it in multiple formats, and I'll keep saying it. This is going to be a crabs in a barrel year for the Big 12, and so there's a high likelihood, uh, like, if things break in the way that I think they break, that that, like, Black Friday game, both Texas and Baylor are, like, 6-2 and two heading into that game, and whoever wins gets into the Big 12 championship game on a tiebreaker. Like, I could see that scenario playing out perfectly because the Big 12 is just such a mess this year. We don't know what OU is going to be. Again, I'll never predict a down OU year until I see it right I'll have to I'll have to you'll I'll give you the prediction in December when OU actually has a down year but like Oklahoma State reloading a ton Baylor reloading a ton at the skill position still really solid at the core Iowa State don't know what they're going to be Kansas State people are really hot on Kansas State but uh, I watched Adrian Martinez play and so I'm just I'm not really feeling it again they could be really good Deuce Vaughn is an incredible back and and they've got the new offensive coordinator and I say new Colin Klein is not new to Kansas State but he's new to the position right um but like we don't know what the Big 12 is going to be I think people are people are picking the over for Kansas at, at two and a half which means that they're probably going going to win a couple of conference games right and so like this could be the year where things get really messy and texas backs its way into that big 12 championship game and and i'm sitting at eight and four as well i think bama you can chalk it up my my own my hope for bama is that texas doesn't get embarrassed in the same way they did against arkansas there's a high likelihood because will anderson is an animal and like the only way that i think he doesn't absolutely disrupt texas is if he like misses the plane for some reason but like uh, I'm I'm an eight and four guy. I said I put it in the BON roundtable. Alamo Bowl is always where Texas ends up when they're in that like middle of the pack. Uh, but eight and four going to the Alamo Bowl, ending up nine and four in year two after you go five and seven is not bad to look at. And so there we have it. Season previews are done. We'll be back on Thursday to talk specifically about the ULM games. So we'd love to have you there as well. You've got a uh, Westcott and Cameron winning his hard podcast between then and now. We'd love to see you back on. 
Thursday. So now's the part of the show where we whip around the rest of campus and we down the 40. Kyle, all is right in the world. The volleyball team is on the court and they are dominating. They headed to Columbus in the heart of Big Ten country, in the heart of what is considered, what they consider themselves the um, most elite volleyball conference now granted they i think they have like five teams at the top 10 or six teams at the top 10 so they're really good but newly minted number one texas who jumped nebraska because of this win over ohio state sweeps them three nothing on friday three to one on saturday friday was a little tighter than saturday saturday is deceptive at three one because um after that one texas kind of cruised yeah, it, and and look, it was a, it was a good chance to see. We talked about it in our kind of little brief preview before this game, but um, there's a ton of depth, a ton of players. Who was going to be Coach Elliott's rotation? You knew, you know, Logan Eggleston would be fantastic, and she was right. She really, truly was. Um, it looked like they are going to be really, really salty um, at the libero. Their 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 setting was amazing. Um, Molly Phillips looked great in some spots. Uh, Skinner from Kentucky looked, uh, she had points where she looked every bit the All-American. Um, so, I, I mean, it's it's going to be names that you become really familiar with uh, over the course of the year. But the, this was a really, really good test and start because though Texas was preseason number two and now number one, um, and, and though they were really good, this was a bit unusual for Texas that there was this much new blood being vetted. And again, it wasn't, other than the fact that there's just so many good players um, that they have to rotate in a bunch of, of people in, in this offseason. But, it, you know, we'll, we'll see as they, they get to their exact rotation and who besides Eggleston is a for sure thing with multiple players who've been all conference and various conferences coming in. And there's probably like 10 deep of just really all conference level or higher play on this team and really, really, really good win to start the season. I went back and looked last year was, you know, straight set sweeps against uh, very, you know, smaller teams, right, that, that Texas should have beat. This was like, ooh, we're starting off tough here. Let's see how this goes. And I think they responded really well on the road uh, in Big Ten country. They got punched in the mouth on Saturday and then came back and said, no, you don't do that. And, like, absolutely cruised in the end, which is which is pretty incredible. So uh, Logan Eggleston was just back in her, like, form. She's got, like, it's hard to be mad at her, but, like, that risk-reward style, like, the high-risk, high-reward style is just how she plays. It is what makes her great, but there's always just, like, one that I'm like, could you just get that one in? But it's fine. It is what it is. But Texas back in action, hosting number five Minnesota on Wednesday, going through, knocking off two of the top, hopefully, uh, Big Ten teams. And then they head out to Cali to take on Stanford this Sunday. Soccer. Splits the weekend series with number one, North Carolina and Florida. Uh, North Carolina absolutely cruised in. I say cruised in this one. Not quite as cruised as the other one, but 2-0. The Tar Heels were suffocating. Texas only had eight shots in the game, so definitely suffocating. Uh, And then Florida, Texas actually uh, had to to battle in this one, but came away with a 3-2 win in that one. Yeah, North Carolina looks every bit as good as their number one ranking. Uh, Coach... Coach Angela Kelly uh, did an interview before the game and talked about, you know, at my four years at North Carolina, we only lost one game in four years. So, like, kind of, you know, say it a little bit. Like, the team's good, but let's see if they're, you know, one game in four years good. But they're they're definitely uh, great for context. They beat Baylor 6-0. to zero, So, I guess that's uh, that's certainly uh, an upgrade in that one. But, yeah, they're, they're a really good team. Texas knows their level that they need to get to. Um, with a bunch of returning super seniors, but a lot of sophomores and some freshmen contributing. You know, they have some room to grow for sure. And, you know, they they know where the standard is, where they need to try to get to. Florida, a really good SEC team, came in, and and this was, I think, a a really good test. This is a game that Texas would not have probably battled back for in previous years. And and, um, the goal specifically that, that Emma Reagan scored was a freaking, like, Blast! Like if this was uh, a La Liga team who who hit the same goal, it would be on SportsCenter's top ten. Like just a ball came to her outside of the box, and she just just absolutely crushed it in the upper ninety. Beautiful, beautiful goal. Um, just you know, really great fight. Trinity Byers continues to be one of the best forwards in the country, bar none. Um, not as a sophomore, not as a Big Twelve player, like just one of the best goal scorers in the country. So really excited, you know, to see her in year two uh, as well. And um, Savannah Madden, a graduated player in a super senior, super, super senior year coming back and um, 
looking big in the in especially the the Florida game though again they got two goals in North Carolina with 23 shots eight of those on target so she was big in that one too uh to keep it to keep it uh respectable yeah for context against for the two nil win the loss at North Carolina North Carolina beat Baylor six nil so just adding some context could have been way worse at, at least uh 300 percent uh, worse could have been so Texas moves to two and one on the regular season they head a little west coast John it's I mean I hear that the 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 Pacific Northwest is really nice this time of year uh they're gonna head to Oregon to take on the ducks Thursday night before uh staying out west for Gonzaga on Saturday and Kyle no results yet but cross country one of our low-key kind of favorite sports to talk about uh they start on Thursday so when we are doing our preview podcast for ULM cross country will probably already be done uh running through the woods and doing that the tornado watch invitational on Thursday so we'll have results for them next week best name invitational in the country and so that's the part of the show where we honor one of the best traditions in all of college athletics, Big Bertha, and we bang the drum, brought to you by Joe Ruiz. So, Kyle, what are you banging the drum on this week? Gerald, between keeping up with, you know, 20 sports on campus and, and all the rosters of each and recruiting and players who commit and decommit and, and players going on to the next level and playing professionally in various sports. Like there's a lot of names to keep in your head. And there was one that popped up uh, a couple days ago that it, it had slipped my mind. I hadn't thought about in a while, admittedly, but um, it was a feel good story. And so I was glad to think about it and I was glad to see some good news, right. For um, former Texas defensive end, uh, Peter and Paji, uh, who was himself, you know, a, a big recruit, like a, you know, four-star recruit in a, a couple classes ago. Um, but basically he medically retired from from football um, in 2019 with uh, cardiomyopathy during his freshman season. He was, he was um, stated early this year, he's not fully healed. Um, but this week uh, on, I believe, Saturday, Sunday, um, he posted a social media post and it was great to see almost every Longhorn player who has been in the program in that time reposting it, like just the the, the Longhorn love um, and brotherhood there, but basically posted um, about his successful uh, heart transplant, right? Um, which I'm not. A, I'm not a doctor. I don't. I don't know all the specifics. I can break down a defense. I can't necessarily break down uh, a heart surgery. But um, it was really, really amazing in seeing that this person, who was you know an incredible athlete at one point in his life, was rendered to needing this to survive, um, and then getting it, and now seeing what he does with the rest of his life, how he takes this and, and creates a great life. Um, just the humbleness that he posted you know, about it with tells me that he's on the right track and he's going to do great things. Um, it, just a reminder. I mean, we always say it, uh, every time, uh, a player chooses to go in the transfer portal, every time a player like Darian Brown or, um, that, uh, that big tackle from I'm, I'm blanking now from Westlake who ended up not playing when we were in school, um, who, who, uh, had a heart issue as well. Like when these players, don't end up doing exactly what they thought we hoped they would when they were 17 and committed to UT. They're still a part of the Longhorn family and there's still thousands and thousands of people who are rooting for them and, and wishing them the best. And so seeing that support of Longhorn nation rising up and wishing him well and, and reposting and wishing, you know, just, just, um, feeling the good vibes before we start a football season when I know it's easy to be angry and think about these guys, uh, and, and in other sports, these gals as, um, just you know uh, positions they're, they're human beings who go through a ton um physical mental emotional whatever in, in in real life too in addition to playing all these sports that that we love to watch so really good reminder really good story just just so happy uh for peter and Paji and his his family these stories are so tough because like it's impossible to separate like why we why we know peter Paji and, and uh the sports of it but like these moments where a player has, where, where a human has the opportunity to have a second leash on life is just absolutely incredible. And so we're uh, obviously thoughts and prayers go out to him and his family. We're just so glad he was able to um, have that opportunity and, and get the transplant that he needed to improve his life and really save his life. So I'm banging the drum this week on uh, Florida A&M University and, and the state of HBCUs in the United States. Uh, if you didn't know, there was some, some, uh, fear and trepidation toward the end of last week, the Florida A&M was not going to have enough eligible players to field the team for their game uh, against North Carolina this last weekend. And, and uh, if you're unaware, you know, Florida A&M is, is an HBCU and, and um, 
they are this this is this is basically what they call a buy game right for um these types of schools where they will be paid several million million or plus dollars by a large school to come in and fill out a schedule to be a pretty easy win for um what north carolina and um those million dollar buyouts, those million dollar uh, trips for them generally fund the entire athletic budget for these schools for a year. And so Florida A&M's inability to make this game would have literally crippled their athletic department uh, beyond what it already is. And so the players today released a statement Monday at the time of recording. It was Sunday and it, it kind of came to light on Monday. They sent a letter to the president of the university on Sunday and it came out to the, the press Monday. And it is so bad there. Like they have, like their financial aid is delayed. The players aren't able to buy books or to get unlocks for online courses or able to pay bills. Like they've had to pull out classes. They've had, they've been evicted from their apartments because they weren't able to get their financial aid payouts. They had their top player, a guy who was an, uh, was an all American for them. Uh, Isaiah land. He's a guy who might end up playing in the league because he's so good. He was academically ineligible for this game, not because of his grades, but because the one person single one person that works in the academic advising for Florida A&M University was incorrect about the number of classes he needed to take in order to be able to show good academic progress, meet his APR goals, and be eligible. They had 26 players that were in a similar situation. That's why it was iffy that they were going to be able to make the game. And so it's insane to me the state of historically black colleges and universities in this country. These were initially started because black students, black academics were not allowed to go into segregated universities. So these were created. Currently, as it stands, HBCUs account for 20% of the black college graduates in the country. They are backbones to people of color being able to have access to higher education. It is huge. Places like Prairie View in Texas, right? Like these types of places are huge for black students who want to go and have that academic experience. And the fact that they are so poorly funded and supported in this country is ridiculous. And so I've talked about it before, but it, this isn't just for HBCUs. But when we talk about buy games and these buy wins for college um, programs, it is asinine to me that flagship universities like the University of Texas or North Carolina aren't doing those games for in-state schools. North Carolina A&T is around the corner from you, Mac. Like, inject that money into your state's schools. The, the schools that people that can't afford to get into can't pay their way into North Carolina or the University of Texas. Prairie View, right there. Let's get them on the schedule, right? Plus, like, let's get the Prairie View Band at DKR. Like, let's just freaking do it, right? Like, there are such cool opportunities of ways for this to work where you can, one, get that win that you so desperately need to keep your schedule moving and inject some funds into a school in your home state that desperately needs your support. That's all I'm saying. Banging the drum on schools needing support and the flagship universities of those states can and should assist with that that's a really great one gerald and hopefully everyone hears this and and you know speaks to somebody tweets about it writes to somebody lets them know uh forbes did a study and looked at just how much you know hbcu land grant institutions were underfunded via you know versus their equivalent uh, predominantly white institution counterparts right and um over since that information was available like 1987 i think was the first year they were able to to acquire that so it could be much much worse um but in 30 some change years right 35 years um basically looked at if each student was funded at and they have multiple schools but they do have prairie view listed here which you referenced right which has 8621 full-time enrolled students the the amount that that school has been underfunded per pupil in that point if just each school at an hbcu got the same uh, as a student at ut prairie view a&m would have one billion eighty one million one hundred and twenty six thousand one hundred and thirteen dollars more awarded by the Texas state government, right? That's that's a lot. That's B with a billion. I mean, I know it's over 30 years, but it's a lot. Um, and, and and they have for North Carolina A&T, Florida A&M, Tennessee State, uh, you know, the, the list goes, goes on and on and on. Um, 
it's billions of dollars we're talking about here, and that's a whole other conversation about fixing that funding. Um, but I love this idea that Gerald is making here. What ways, instead of fixing everything, what ways can we can we fix a little? Can we help? Can we uh, can we improve on on a day when you know, or a week when when Duke volleyball player talks about going to BYU as the only African American on the court and having racial slurs shouted at her while she's serving uh, from the the, the Provo crowd. Um, you know, we, we're still in a world where, where everything isn't figured out, but what can we do? And I love that Gerald's out here giving us concrete solutions. Uh, you're immense, Gerald. You're always, you're always on the right side of history. So keep it up. And that's all we've got for you this week. Kyle, where can the good folks find you on the internet? You can follow me on Twitter. I am at G.H. Goodridge. Follow the show on Twitter at Longhorn Pod. Facebook and Instagram, the Longhorn Republic. Or shoot us an email, LonghornRepublicPod at gmail.com. Winning is hard. We'll be with you tomorrow. You can check out their preview episode. Then you'll have our uh, separate preview episode on Thursday. Thank you so much for being here. We will see you back on Thursday. And until then, hook them. Hook them. Fund your schools.